want to tell you a story. But then I want to draw some principles out of the story. Then I want to project something about Christmas. And I need you to put the clock on the, uh, whatever you call this thing in the front. Thank you. Lord Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable unto you, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. For I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell the story of Hanukkah and draw some principles out of it and then project it for the season in which we find ourselves living. Hanukkah is a Jewish festival. It became significant because it was the occasion in which the Lord Jesus Christ finally revealed himself for his, who he is. And for that reason, the people tried to stone him, as documented by John in his Gospel, chapter 10. But Hanukkah is a great story. It's called the Festival of Lights, or the Feast of Dedication. It's a Jewish festival. It happened this way. When the Jews came back from Babylon, they struggled for 16 years before they finally got around to rebuilding the temple. And when they finished it, it, was, it had a mixed reaction. The young people cheered. The old people cried. Because they remembered what it had been. It was nowhere near like what it had been. Solomon's temple was extravagant and exquisite and magnificent. This was just a building. And so the old people wept bitterly. There came a prophet, his name was Haggai, and he encouraged them by simply saying, on the day of dedication, which is the 24th of Kislev, he said, from this day, I'm going to bless you. Now that in itself is an incredible expression of encouragement to hear the Lord say, I'm going to bless you. Because to them it seemed as though everything was, was in a shambles. The city had not yet been rebuilt. The walls were not rebuilt. The place was still just a rubble. And yet to hear the voice of the Lord saying, And that is the voice of the Lord that comes to the church even today. Despite what's going on, despite the environment, despite that which we find all kinds of reasons to criticize and negate, God is still simply saying to the church, I'm going to bless you. My hand is going to be upon you heavily for good. But let me come back to my story. For 300 years, the Jewish people enjoyed a kind of peace. In fact, it's called the Little Commonwealth of Judah. They were under the control of Persia, 
But the governor there was a benevolent individual. All he was concerned about was that they behave themselves and that at the end of each year they pay their taxes. Other than that, the Jews could do whatever they wished. And so the priesthood began to take on a new sense of authority. And for 300 years, it was wonderful. And then something happened. The Persian got overthrown by Alexander the Great. And this man swept from Greece through Turkey, through Syria, through the Holy Land, through Egypt, through the Middle East, through Iraq, through Iran, through Afghanistan, through Pakistan, through the Khyber Pass, even to India. And he controlled then because of sickness. He returned back to Babylon where he died in his early 30s. And his kingdom was divided among his four generals. The main ones, as far as we are concerned with regard to our story, happened to be that which was occupied out of Damascus and that which came out of Memphis in Egypt. In the Damascus arena, they had four kings, all called, uh, I can't even pronounce the word. You know, Brent, don't get old. It's not always cracked up to be, honestly, it isn't. In Europe, they call it Antiochus. I think in Chicago, they call it Antiochus. And so, however you pronounce it, this dude, he was the fourth. But he was a narcissist, and he was an egotist, and he associated to his name the title Epiphanes, which indicated that in his eyes he was something extraordinary, somewhat close to being a god. In fact, he saw himself as a human representative of Zeus. When he came to the throne, he became ambitious. He had two ideas in mind. Number one, he wanted to replace Judaism with paganism. He wanted to reduce. And so, if you read the Torah, you were punished. They tried to destroy the Torah. They tried to replace the temple worship with all kinds of other stuff. And Antiochus was really committed to the radical change of the Jewish system of life. He went down to try to enlarge his kingdom by stealing a piece of, of Egypt, but he failed. In his attempt to reorganize Judah, he appointed his own representatives, and they were determined to make a difference. In fact, he appointed one guy whose name was uh, Jehosha, and he changed his name to a more Greek-sounding name, Jason. But he wasn't good enough, and so Antiochus, he, he removed him and replaced him with a cousin. But Jason didn't take very, very well. He didn't like that. And so he became angry because he had been demoted and his cousin had been put in the place of authority in his place. 
And so Antiochus went back down to see if he could steal a piece from Egypt. And while he was down in Egypt, a rumor went through Jerusalem that he had been killed in battle. That meant to say that our dear brother Jason, he decided he's going to overthrow his, uh, his cousin. And so he killed him, and he with a thousand men decided that they were going to rule again on his behalf. Trouble is, there hadn't been a battle. Antiochus had not been killed. In fact, he'd gotten to Egypt, and he was met by the Roman council. And Rome was just beginning to emerge as an authority in the, at that time. And this Roman council simply said, go home in the name of Rome. And Antiochus simply said, huh? He said, go home in the name of Rome. He said, I'll think about it. Yes, do that. And so the council took out his sword and drew a circle around Antiochus and simply said, before you get out that circle, make up your mind what you're going to do. <clears throat> but this mighty man of valor became cowardly. He stepped out the circle and said, we're going home. Angry, embarrassed, humiliated. Not only was he angry, but his whole army were angry because in those days they got paid by the loot they were able to steal. No war, no victory, no loot. And so here they were returning back along the Via Maris, going back toward Damascus. And just before they came to the major crossroads, which is the entrance to the Kidron, to the Megiddo um, Valley, he gets the news that his representative in Jerusalem had been overthrown. Now he began to release his anger. He turned to Jerusalem. He killed Jason and a thousand men. Then he went on to kill another 90,000 Jewish men and decimated the city, went back to Damascus. When he went back to Damascus, he sent a representative back to Jerusalem, this time to appoint a new leader, this time with a new order that they were to erect a statue of Zeus in the temple. And not only erect a statue of Zeus in the temple, they were to offer pigs upon the holy altar. There was an elderly priest. When he heard the order, and when he saw a young Levite volunteer to make the offering, Another young Levite stepped forward. He took forth his sword, whipped it out, killed the young Levite, then killed the ambassador. Knowing what to expect to receive the vengeance of Antiochus, he and his five sons went and hid in the woodlands because Judah was covered with, with woods in those days and hid him for three years. They conducted a guerrilla warfare. <clears throat> After three years, the Syrians got tired of fighting the guerrillas. They returned home to Mama in Damascus. And that's where the story really begins. Now the old man 
had not been able to survive the stress of the guerrilla warfare he'd passed on. And so his son, Judah Maccabees, took over the authority. And with the deliverance and the release of Israel, he decided to start again. And so he announced that he's going to refurbish the temple, rebuild the altar. Now there were Jews. And said, Why? We like what we're doing. We like what's taking place. Being part of the Greek Empire has opened up new markets. We've become wealthy. This is good for us. Anyway, the temple wasn't all that much, was it? Even our forefathers cried over it. There was never an expression of the Shekinah. There was never any evidence of the grace of God. In fact, if there's a box in the holiest place, it's not the real thing. At best, it's a replica because the real thing, the real ark has been removed many, many years since. So why? He said, I want to do it because I want to honor the name of my God. And so the first thing he did, rather than just whitewash the old altar, he tore it down. And he began to rebuild it according to the pattern as established in the Torah. And having rebuilt the altar, he then repaired the menorah and placed that with the other table in the holy place. And he wanted a sacrifice to the Lord. This is where legend comes in. Up until now, I've been giving historic fact, but now this is where legend comes in. One of the priests had found hidden in an alcove of the, of the temple wall, a container of holy oil. That is true. Judah wanted to offer a sacrifice. But he wanted to make sure it was going to be acceptable to the Lord. How was he going to get a flame? He didn't want to offer it with strange fire. It was to be holy fire. But how do you develop holy fire? The legend says that as this priest brought this canister of oil toward the temple, it was a typical, dismal, dark, damp, December day in Jerusalem. Did you know they had three feet of snow in Jerusalem this week? Three feet of snow. It hasn't happened like that for over a hundred years. Now when we were there, a few years back, we had about three inches or four inches of snow on our trip, didn't we? Because you, when the girls were out there throwing snowballs at, at the Israeli military. Yes, you were. I saw you. 
I was up on the fourth floor looking down, and there you were, dancing around, throwing snowballs. But you did enjoy it, darling. You enjoyed the occasion. What is he talking about? Uh, you, you know, when you get to my age, you, 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 for, you forget. And so, George, what am I talking about? The what? You, you come and finish the message, brother. <laughs> obviously, obviously you, you know it better than I do. <clears throat> a dark, damp, dismal day. And suddenly there came a hole in the clouds. And through that hole in the clouds there came a shaft of light from the sun. It went directly upon the canister that the, the priest was holding. And it caused the oil in the canister to burst in the flame. It was from that flame that they built a fire on the altar. They took that oil and poured it into the menorah, having lit the servant lamp. And from the servant lamp to light the other candles. It had enough oil for one day. It takes, according to Torah principle, eight days to prepare holy oil. They had oil for one day. And the celebration of Hanukkah is but this. The lamps kept burning for one day, for two days, for three days, for four days, for five days, for six days, for seven days, eight days until they had sufficient preparation for fresh oil or when they poured in the fresh oil just as the servant lamp was about to go out they refilled the bowl and the lamps came back to light that is the story of Hanukkah now there are some principles which are really applicable to us from that story. The first one it has to do with conduct. You see, when Judah Maccabees decided to restore the altar and to refurbish the temple, it caused him to become involved in a deliberate act. Conduct. There is a principle. No matter how decadent society becomes, it is never right to do wrong. No matter how politically correct society becomes, it is never wrong to do right because conduct and behavior is based upon the word of Scripture, not the whim of society. 
So the first principle has to do with conduct. The second principle has to do with commitment. He decided, I ought to say, let me change that word and make it courage. That's a better term, courage. He decided to rebuild. And I submit to you, church, it takes courage to rebuild that which is broken. Oh, I know that according to the male ego, we look at something and we say, oh, well, I'm sorry about that, and boom, and we forget it. And we think that because we were sorry for a moment that everything is not fine and dandy. That's the weakness of the male ego. Some things take time. Some things take effort. It takes time to rebuild character. It takes time to rebuild trust. And to do that takes courage. Ravi Zacharias tells a story which comes from his native India. And in India, it is almost sacrilegious to violate your vows of marriage. Not just among Christians, it's just a societal thing. And he speaks of a, a well-known businessman who was a nominal Christian who was married to a devout lady was a Christian, and he had violated his marriage. He went to her and somebody said, and having been found out, he confessed, will you forgive me? She said, yes, I forgive you. That was all. But that thing niggled his mind and imagination. After several weeks, Rabbi says, he couldn't stand it anymore. How could she be so nonchalant? How could you be so casual? Just I forgive you. And so he left work, went home early. As he entered the door, he heard this deep wailing coming from the heart of the house. He went to where the wailing was taking place. And there he saw his wife on her knees, kneeling on a pillow, tears rolling down her cheeks, crying out, God, God, help me to live it. I've said it. I meant it. But I need your grace to help me to live it. And Ravi simply says at that moment, that man understood the courage that it takes to rebuild. First word is conduct. The second word is courage. Oh, I remember that, uh, Pastor Brent. Third word is commitment. Friend, if rebuilding 
is always a good idea. Dedicating or rededication is always in vogue. Here was Judah rebuilding the altar, rebuilding the house, and rededicating it to the Lord. If you've never dedicated your life to Jesus, you don't know what you're missing. Not only life in this age, but the life which is to come. Not only peace now, the peace of God, but peace with God. You don't know what you're missing. The commitment to dedicate. The commitment to rededicate. It's a good thing to rededicate your life. There are two Sundays that take place in your church, Pastor Smith, which I look forward to with great anticipation. The first one is the first Sunday of the new year when our pastor calls all those involved in business to come forward to dedicate themselves to the new year. And now they come to dedicate themselves to service. The elders and the pastors, they anoint them with oil. And then having fulfilled, then the pastor prays over them that God would give them success for that year. And I've watched men, I've watched women, that their whole business has been transformed because of that service in which they rededicated themselves to the Lord and the Lord accepted it and blessed them. That's the first Sunday. The other Sunday is the Sunday before school goes back in. When all those who are involved in education, we bring, pastor brings them forward. The elders anoint them with oil that they'll be kept safe that year. And not only will they be kept safe, but God will grant them the ability to open the eyes of the understanding of the students that they may be able to perceive and that they may be able to catch the truth. I've had teachers talk about it was a good year that they, would, they had an awful class, but that year was changed because of the time of dedication. If it deals with conduct, if it deals with courage, if it deals with commitment, it's a good thing to dedicate. It's a good thing to rededicate your life, your home, your family, your sense of well-being to rededicate it to the Lord. The fourth principle taught I've forgotten. No, I haven't. It's cognizance. Judah Maccabees became cognizant of the fact as bad as everything appeared to be the Lord was mindful of who he was, where he was, and what he was doing. And I've come to the conclusion, after 185 years of living, 
that what we call the life of faith is nothing more. It's not living in some la-la land, being ethereal or being exotically floating lonely as a cloud. That the life of faith is simply seeing the provision of grace which is bigger than the size of your problem. It's not that it removes the problem. The problem is always there. But the supply of grace is much more significant and much more important and much more dynamic than the problem has ever been. Cognizance. He saw the supply which brings me to the last principle that I'm going to share in this time, but then I'm going to project it as something else. And it's that of confidence. Confidence. Whatever the task, whatever the challenge, hear me, Bethesda. You have enough to start. You may not have anything else, but you have enough to start. Peter discovered this when he got out of the boat. If that's you, Lord, bid me come. The Lord said, tell him, man. Now Peter stepped out of the boat. And he said, where, where, where are you going? He turned to Andrew and said, does he do this often? Andrew said, I've never seen him do it before. He started a step of the water. He had enough to start. It doesn't matter how many times you go to the Holy Land, how many times you traverse the Sea of Galilee, you will never ever see a boy which marked, this is where Peter drowned. <laughs> he had enough to start. And as he faltered and failed, he said, Lord, help me. The Lord took him by the hands and he had enough to continue to complete. Ah, oh, but the greatest illustration of this is in the story of the feeding of the masses. And Pastor Randolph, Warren Pearsall told me years ago of a series you preached on the feeding of the 5,000. An eight-week series. Magnificent message. Three miracles took place that day. The first was that a little boy still had his lunch at the end of the day. <laughs> if a kid's got food in his pocket, whether it be chocolate or whatever else, he's going to eat it. And yet after the whole day, they're still there. That's a miracle. Second miracle, when he heard the disciples talk about being hungry, he became hungry and he's prepared to give his lunch to someone else. Mine. That's the language of young people. Mine. 
when the was put in the hands of the disciples, Andrew looked at Jesus and said, he wants to feed this much? The Lord said, what do you have? They didn't have anything. They had a boy's lunch. He said, we got five loaves and two sardines. And the Lord said, that's enough. Make the people sit down on the grass in small groups. Are you going to feed them? They had enough to start. I think Andrew served the little boy first. And after he'd eaten more than what he'd given, he asked if he could have seconds. Had enough to start. And this magnificence of walking with Jesus, this, you'll always have enough to start. No matter how great the problem, no matter how massive the issue, you'll have enough to start. That is the story. Those are the principles, some of the principles that comes out the story of Hanukkah. But I can't stop there. I've got to follow the, the words of uh, Pastor Todd. You've got to make it some kind of an application. The Jews have the right and the responsibility to, ce to celebrate Hanukkah and the works of uh, Judah Maccabees. But I'm here to tell you this morning, a greater than Judah Maccabees is in this house. His name is Jesus, the Messiah. And as we come to this season, we look around us and say, what has the Lord done? And thankfully, the Apostle Paul encapsulates it in a matter of six simple statements. If you want to know what the Lord has done, he said it this way. Exquisite is the unveiling of godliness. Number one, God manifested in the flesh. Theologians call that the incarnation. Mary's grandchildren call it Christmas. God manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit that happened when Jesus went across Jordan. There before John, John said, I need to be baptized of you. The Lord said, suffer it be so for righteousness sake. As he went into the waters, and as he came out, a voice affirmed his identity and affirmed his life hitherto. And the Holy Spirit landed upon him in the form of a dove to activate him to ministry and the reality of life. Great is that mystery. God manifests the flesh, justified in the spirit. Seen of angels, the Jews call that the feast of first fruits. The church calls it 
resurrection day. For other ladies approached the tomb. They saw these two beings clothed in white. And they said, what are you doing here? They were looking for Jesus. He said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. God manifests in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Scene of angels. Paul jumps over the next incident, which is the ascension. You might say, well, why is that important? Because according to John, we could not be empowered with grace until he had been enthroned in glory. And as soon as he was enthroned in glory, he sent to us the dynamic of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to function in the charismata. But Paul does go on. Seal of angels, preached among the Gentiles. I'm so glad that the Lord has included us. Whatever our ethnic background, no matter what our generation, no matter what our social status, no matter what, where we are, where we came from, the message has been preached among the Gentiles. Ah, but Paul goes looks further down the telescope of time. And he says, believed on in the world. And speaking of being believed on in the world, he's talking to the church. The church, the church of the Lord Jesus, sometimes struggling, sometimes just standing, sometimes succeeding, but it's the church. And unlike the philosophy of the Greeks that history goes round and round and round and round. What's come around has been around, etc., etc. Hebrew philosophy is not circular, it's linear. The church is going somewhere. The church is becoming something. The church is exhibiting the wonder of God in Agriculture. And Paul concludes by simply saying, not only God manifests in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the goyim, and also believed on in the world, he says, received up into glory. There he's not speaking of the ascension of the Christ is speaking of the ascension of the church. For the church is moving ever onward towards the time and towards the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Therefore, we take confidence in the fact 
because we know that he who is the author is also the finisher. We have confidence in the now. We have enough to start. And because of that, we have enough to finish. Pastor Smith, to you, my pastor, and your immediate family, and your extended family, the family of Bethesda, I wish you a blessed Christmas and a prosperous New Year.